Infirmary Media. Start. People engage, stop for jeweling decades. The Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Scrap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Hoop culture, popping pins, dropping hand grenades. Van Halen locked in mortal combat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick, I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Jeweling decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. I am Mark James, and welcome back to Dueling Decades. This week, we return to the week experience. I will be bringing the best of October 24th through the 31st of 1982. Alongside these other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, representing October 24th through the 30th of 1993, say hello to Man Crush. Yeah! October 24th through 30th, 1993. This is a best of episode, correct? Yes. It's probably not going to feel like it. No. <laughs> <laughs> also on the panel this week, in dueling with October 19th through the 25th of 1975, welcome back to the show, Drew Zachman. What's up, guys? It's Drew from the Songs Gone Wrong podcast, and yeah, 1975, shit show. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So back behind the bench this week, by listener request, is Dueling Decade's own fan favorite, Mr. Mike Ranger. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Ranger, and uh, I've already decided uh, who's going to win, and that's whoever takes off their shirt first. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> I'm in that kind of mood. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. All right, to all the killers and the $100 billers, it's time to play more. Dueling Decades. Woo! Mike, what do you got to flip? Well, as customary, uh, I have brought a VHS, and today the VHS is uh, the Earth Day Special from 1990. Yes, because... Who doesn't care about the earth? <laughs> I love the earth. Yeah, it's a good place. Well, since you love the earth so much, Drew Zachman, why don't you call in the air this week? <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, so I'll uh, give it a toss. Ready? One, two. Tails. And we have heads. Son of a bitch. Not loving the earth so much now, are you? <laughs> I'm going to go spray around a bunch of fucking Aquanet. All right, Man Crush, for this week experience battle, you win the toss-off, you take control of the board. What category are we going with first? All right, let's do news. I think it's warranted. We begin with the news, and let's go back to October 24th of 1993. Here's a story out of the New York Daily News about a five-year-old boy who thought he could fly, and it's Probably every parent's worst nightmare as well. Little Paul Rosen, 
who lived on East 79th Street in the Upper East Side in New York City. He was playing with his toys that Sunday afternoon, and when he decided to reach for one of his toys, it was rolling off the windowsill of his sixth-story apartment. The window in question was unprotected by any metal guards, and little Paul fell nearly 70 feet out of that window onto the asphalt below. Paul's mother, Christine, is quoted as saying, Paul's a strong, brave child who thought he could fly. Well, I hope that uh, that didn't put you in a mood to fast forward because perhaps Paul could fly because little Paul fell 70 feet out a window right onto the asphalt sidewalk below without breaking a single bone in his body and without ever losing consciousness. Paramedics showed up at the scene prepared to collect a gruesome body but were shocked when the boy was sitting on the sidewalk, totally able to answer all of their questions. Matter of fact, the boy wanted to know if the paramedics were going to give him a Band-Aid and then reminded his mother that he never ate breakfast that morning. The boy was taken to the New York Medical Hospital Cornell Medical Center and was listed in critical but stable condition after x-rays and CAT scans revealed no injuries. The hospital decided to keep the boy for a week just to see if there were any internal injuries that would come to light. However, in an article I found a few days later, he was upgraded to stable condition and nothing else was found. And since this was the last article I could find on this entire situation, it appears that this little boy landed without any injuries. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the boy who could fly. <laughs> That's insane. Oh, he's unbreakable. <laughs> I, Dude, I tried so hard to look up. Paul Rosen's kind of a common name. So I was looking for like death records or Facebook accounts, Instagram. There's tons of them. And I just couldn't narrow it down. I wanted to like start messaging them because I wanted to have the dude on the show, but I, I couldn't find it. But if you're out there, Paul, and you're listening, good job, buddy. <laughs> Your story was so much better than the movie because it was shorter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have this week for the news round? All right, so I have a story on October 24th, 1975. Uh, this is a this is a story of women power, girl power. I love it. We have the Icelandic women strike. What happened was on October twenty fourth, nineteen seventy five, the wonderful women of Iceland went on strike for the day to demonstrate the indispensable work of women for Iceland's economy and society, and also to protest wage discrepancy and unfair employment practices. Now, participants did not go to their paid jobs that day, nor did they do any housework or child rearing for the whole day? 90% of Iceland's female population participated in the strike. So a good, a good percentage there uh, went on strike for that day. I'll tell you what, it was so effective that Iceland's parliament passed a law guaranteeing equal pay the following year. So they went out, they did a little protest, and uh, you know what? Government was like, you know what? You guys are right. That's pretty fair. And if that wasn't enough... The strike helped pave the way for the election of Vigdis Finn Bogadotter, the first democratically elected female president in the world five years later in 1980. So pretty damn awesome. Looks like Iceland got it right. But uh, October 24th, 1975, the Icelandic women's strike. Wow. Um, I have a question. Uh, what were they wearing? Um, they're wearing like blue hats. And socks. 
Were they powerful enough to jump out a window and live? And and also wearing a big smile. I'm they sold. Were doing something right. Equal pay. Yep. All right, guys. So for my news story this week, we're going to go to Halloween 1982. Now, that should ring a bell because Halloween 1982 was kind of like the Halloween where Halloween lost its innocence. And not in a good way either. This was the Halloween where we started hearing about all the pins and needles and razor blades stuffed in candy. So we're going to go to the Daily News, New York, New York, in the Long Island section, October 29th, 1982, in the headline that reads, Cops Looking for Pin Planter. Long Island police were searching yesterday for a possibly deranged person or persons who slipped small, sharp, straight pins into bags of candy in both Nassau and Suffolk during the past two weeks. Now, we'll skip ahead a couple of days to actual Halloween Day in the Herald News out of Passaic, New Jersey. There's an entire page dedicated to stories about these happenings. Uh, One of the headlines reads, Consumers Heating Candy Bar Warnings. Dozens of candy bars containing pins, needles, nails have been found in metropolitan area stores, but few injuries have resulted because people are heeding the warnings, police said Saturday. It seems like a lot of people are smart enough to check the stuff before they eat it. And it goes on to say that 10 incidents were reported in Long Island where an East Meadow man was injured when he bit into a Cadbury Caramello candy that contained a straight pin. Frank Colonnade, 28 years old, suffered a small cut when a pin pricked his cheek, police said. And then also there was a straight pin found in a bun candy bar up in Poughkeepsie. So what had happened was earlier in the month in Chicago, we had the Tylenol poisonings. Six people had died because some Tylenol pills had got laced with PCP. Again, those people thought they could fly too. So people are already on edge about the possibility of candy being contaminated, and then two days before Halloween, someone finds a pin. There was actual towns in New Jersey that canceled Halloween. There was no trick-or-treaters, and if there were, it was pretty scarce, much like this year. So that's what I got from my news story. The Halloween of 1982, and some deranged people actually putting the pins and needles in the candy bars. Can I ask you a question? How hard is it to detect... A needle in a candy bar. Probably not very hard once it's in your mouth. <laughs> no, but like, if they didn't break open the package, they had to slide it in one end, right? Right. It's not like they did it prior. I always wondered that. My parents used to say the same shit. My mom was all over that. She was one of them helicopter moms who was always like, oh, make sure you check all the candy. It's a lot easier now. Because <laughs> of this, they actually, manufacturers changed the way they did business, and they actually started using airtight wrappers for the candy bars. If you remember before that, the, the wrappers the, were yeah, not the airtight. Foil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember. Actually, yeah, I totally forgot that. Like, now they're sealed. Right. But then it would just come open on the bottom. Correct. Yeah. Nobody likes a flaccid wrapper. <laughs> All right, so let's head down to Mike Ranger for the ruling on the news round. Well, um, first, I'd like to congratulate Mark for uh, coming with uh, the uh, possibly the uh, biggest downer of a story <laughs> uh, because it plagued every kid for like yes. the next 15 to 20 years. Like we didn't he, not a Halloween was celebrated where somebody didn't at least mention that, you know, or some mom was like, I got to inspect the candy first. They still do. 
Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, now it's so different. I mean, uh, do you, can you get candy uh, on Facebook? You might be able to. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because there was even a a separate part on this page where they were giving alternatives of what people could do. And something that somebody actually proposed would have completely killed Halloween for good. They proposed that people no longer give out candy, but give out coupons that those coupons could be redeemed for a piece of candy at the store. All right. That's just ridiculous. You'd go out walking for, you know, three, four hours, come back with a bag full of paper. Then your parents would have to drive you all around town to get one piece of candy at each store. It's never going to happen. And of course, on Sunday, a lot of the stores weren't open. So you'd have to wait till Monday. Oh, then you're back to school. So by the time the weekend rolls around, who gives a shit? All right. Well, that just confirms <laughs> that Mark is not winning this round. Uh, but let's uh, let's go move on to uh, women's rights, uh, which uh, certainly deserves at least uh, five minutes of our time, or even less, because that's not winning either. Uh, I like the idea of uh, of a kid not dying, and some parent just getting the absolute like that must have been the scariest and best day of somebody's life horrible the uh the dad actually stormed downstairs and there was a gate that separated the apartment complex from the sidewalk and you know like just think about how nervous you had to be so this dude like booked down six flights of stairs and he goes outside and he's trying to get the gate open and he said in this story that he couldn't get the gate open he just kicked the motherfucker and broke the whole lasp and everything so just imagine what he felt when he saw his kid and the kid was just like I didn't eat breakfast this morning. You know what? I mean, it's honestly like if you really just think about it, that's like one of those things that you it's a complete miracle. That's why I'm giving it to the, the boy who could fly. <laughs> it's a miracle win in that round. All right, man, crush, you picked up the first point. What category are we going to next? Let's go television. All right. So let's go back to October 25th of 1993. The show debuted on this date and only lasted for two seasons before getting ousted from MTV's airwaves, but it was a staple of my high school years. More than that, it was the springboard for this host. He went on to better, bigger and better things. Let's just leave it there. But for my two-year span while I was in high school, my sophomore, sophomore and junior years in high school, I would religiously watch the show anytime it was on MTV. And MTV, to me, is like NBC and Fox. And that a lot of the shows, you always had that feeling that the network was just going to pull the rug and they would just eliminate the show. To this day, I still won't get involved in an NBC show unless it's beyond two seasons because I've just been burned so many times over the years and MTV is the exact same way. That said, from the first episode I watched this, I knew this guy was going places and MTV was just his launching pad. Uh, This was a talk show. Uh, It was built in similar vein to late night talk shows. You'd have the guest on the show. They'd get interviewed. Then there was a band performance afterwards. In some cases, the band was also the interview. The show was also the first time I got to see one of my favorite bands play at the time. Uh, For example, uh, the first time I ever got to see Green Day play live. Probably the first time for many people, considering they played the show the month after Dookie came out in March of 1994. Then there was an episode that I remember very fondly where Marilyn Manson played a couple songs off Portrait of American Family and then burned a Bible on the air, set part of the stage on fire before physically humping the host, uh, which caused quite a stir. 
And then you had some absolute legends of the business getting interviewed on the show. Guys that never, ever get interviewed. Saw Howard Stern get interviewed on the show and completely turned the tables on the host. And one great line that I still remember, Howard Stern was talking about his little dick. And John Stewart replies, well, you're a tall guy, so maybe if I had your penis, it would look grotesque on my body. Uh, but it's great how you can remember shit like that, but I can't remember what I ate for dinner last night. I literally cannot remember <laughs> that, but I remember that. Uh, and he also had David Letterman was on the show on his last episode, which is a treat. If you can find it, look it up. Uh, we're talking about the John Stewart show on MTV here. And for, you know, he, they dropped him in 95. A few years after that last episode, he'd land on Comedy Central for roughly 16 years on The Daily Show. Uh, but seriously, no one was surprised. This dude was funny. He was talented. And it's just my opinion. But that show now is an abortion without him on it. Uh, but luckily, we got legs here because Jon Stewart's coming back and he's getting his own news, or his news show on Apple TV. They just announced that last week. So we got the Jon Stewart show debuting on MTV. Pride of Lawrence, New Jersey. I love it. All right, Drew Zachman, what did you bring for the television round? Oh, I brought something. I'll tell you that. October 21st, 1975. Facing elimination, the Boston Red Sox fought back in extra innings to defeat the Cincinnati Reds in Game 6 of the 75 World Series. Now, this game had loads of drama. Down 6-3 in the bottom of the 8th, uh, Boston had their first two batters get on base before Cincinnati changed pitchers, and then they got the following two guys out. Uh, one a strikeout, the other in a lineup. And then with two men on and two outs, in the bottom of the eighth, down by three, Boston sends in a pinch hitter for Roger Moray. And that pinch hitter was Bernie Carbo. And then with a 2-2 count, Carbo hit a game-tying home run to deep center field. Now, if you guys know Fenway Park, center field's pretty fucking deep out there. They also have a, it's not the monster, but they have a good size wall out there. Plus it's like 440 feet up there. So that's a shot to hit it to dead center. Then in the bottom of the 12th, catcher Carlton Fisk leads off the inning. And on the second pitch of the at-bat, he hits a Pat Darcy pitch down the line. Now growing up, we would watch, you know, baseball and just like in general sports highlights all the time because we're big sports nuts as kids. This was one of those home runs that we would see on every highlight film as Fisk kept waving the ball to stay fair, which it eventually did as he hit a walk-off home run to send the series to Game 7, where Boston would eventually lose. But the main the main takeaway here was that home run that Fisk hit, because like I said, you could not watch any baseball highlight growing up and not see that Carlton Fisk home run. It was it was everywhere. It was such an iconic, uh, iconic play in baseball history. So, Unless you're Robin Williams. Because he went to see about a girl. <laughs> Come on, man. Anyway, October 21st, 1975, Carlton Fisk home run. All right, guys. So for my television entry, we're going to go to Halloween night, 1982. Sit down in front of the tube. How about we watch a little of the all-time American classic, Chips? Because they got their Halloween episode on called Rock Devil Rock. And that's where Ponch and Bobby are hired to protect Moloch. A goth rock star, Moloch later tells him that he fears that he is cursed and that he is going to die. This is a really cool episode of Chips uh, because it has some really 
good guest stars. Cassandra Peterson, of course, she plays Elvira in this episode, but she's a little more dressed up than usual because Chips, of course, is a primetime TV show, so she couldn't wear her normal Elvira attire. Um, Also, uh, in the character of Flippy, was a young boy who was arrested for putting pumpkins in the middle of the road so cars could run over them, is current Metallica bassist Robert Trujillo. And, of course, Moloch himself, the goth rock star, which is a complete and total ripoff of Gene Simmons from Kiss. Right down to the makeup. is It's basically like, put Gene Simmons' Kiss makeup on somebody's face, and then add a few more things on top of that. It's a complete ripoff. That character is played by Don Most. Yes, Ralph Mouth from Happy Days. <laughs> So it's just an unforgettable episode. You got to check that one out. It's called Rock Devil Rock. It aired October 31st, 1982 for some chips. Sounds dangerous. Were you checking your candy while you're watching? I was. I was. I hope so. Let's the first guys. <laughs> All right. Let's head down to Mike Ranger for the ruling on the television round. Well, gentlemen, uh, first, let me just say that you've all given me plenty to think about. And, uh, I think what I'm going to do here, Mark, I absolutely love your selection. And as soon as we're done with this, I'm going to add that to my watch list. But unfortunately, no, you did not win this round. Oh, man. Now, see, if you were to go on YouTube, you can watch the video of Moloch and his hit single, Devil Take Me. That might persuade you a little bit. But I'll post that up to our Facebook group so everyone can check that out along with the episode. All I'm picturing here is Sammy Kerr from Trick or Treat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if it was like the dime store knockoff version of that. Yeah, he didn't have makeup. That, that's what I'm picturing. Right. <laughs> um, and while I, uh, I guess also while I do love uh, the uh, John Stewart on the uh, Daily Show, and it's cool that like you were able to find basically like where he started, but that home run is just so damn iconic. Oh yeah. And he hits it, and then he's, like, waving. You know, he's trying to wave the ball to stay fair. I mean, I years of just watching that highlight, I mean, it's it was everywhere. The funniest thing about that was he wasn't actually waving for the home run. His mother-in-law was in the stands, and he just wanted her to leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, she did, because that was the end of the game, so. <laughs> Double whammy. I like that good old mother-in-law joke. I got a whole book of those. (laughs) All right, Drew, you pick up a point and take control of the board, heading into our final one-point round. What category are we going with? Yeah, I'm going to go to hot products. I really hope this qualifies as a hot product, to be honest with you. Uh, But October 21st, 1975, uh, I I give you, uh, it it was a train. Basically, the first passenger train to run the entire 1,160-mile length of the completed Tanzam Railroad arrived in Kapiri, Pashi, in Zambia two days after its departure from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. So the hot product is the railway because it completed, and it was a joint venture by Tanzania, Zambia, and the People's Republic of China. And it was completed actually a year ahead of schedule after five years of work by about 80,000 laborers and engineers. Now, I don't know if any uh, any listeners are project managers out there, but from a PM standpoint, this is pretty damn impressive. Projects like these never complete on schedule. 
But I also would be willing to bet that any of the projects we work on most likely don't include slave labor. So there's also that. Um, I didn't say anything that they use slave labor, but I mean, come on, they, they probably use slave labor. Now, uh, the railway provided the only route for bulk trade from Zambia's copper belt to reach the sea without having to transit white ruled territories. And China played a key role in the development as they sent about 50,000 personnel to work on the railway from 1964 to 1975 including about 30,000 to 40,000 workers, and then an estimated 60,000 Africans participated in the construction. So the Tanzam Railroad, so hot, so hot, October 21st, 1975. It's the most interesting hot product I've ever heard. (laughs) Dude, fucking the 70s, man. I couldn't find anything. It's the hottest. (laughs) All right, Man Crush, what did you bring for the hot products round? First, I want to give Drew props for that, because not only did he have to dig, but then he went to a totally different continent to find that. That's impressive. Dude, I spent hours trying to find a fucking hot product from October 19th to the 25th of 1970 fucking five. I was I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know if I would even count this one as a hot product. But I'm like, it is the closest thing I have that would qualify as any kind of hot product. I mean, it was a product. They seem pretty excited about it. They spent five years fucking working on it. So I'm like, yeah, it's a hot product. Hey, I bet tickets for that inaugural journey were hard to get a hold of. Hence, it would have been a hot product. So there you go. Super hot. All right. So let's go to 1993, October 25th, 1993. And this, it might not seem like a big deal in 2020, but in 1993, this was huge. And the general public probably didn't think this was probably a big deal either, as only 15 million people were on the internet at the time. I remember when this happened in 1993 very well. And at the time, I was on the internet, but there was still no local internet service providers around me. This was 1993. So it wasn't like you could just go to Gmail and sign up for a free email address, nor Yahoo or Microsoft or anything else for that matter. So to get an email address, you typically had to have your local internet service provider. And I recall my first email address I got from a local ISP around like 1995 or so. And I was on warwick.net. I don't know if you remember that one, Mike. My email address was like... 914-555-5555 because initially our local ISP would use your phone number as your email address instead of your username. Uh, And prior to that, like if you were on AOL or Prodigy, Delphi, CompuServe, QLink, et cetera, the emails were internal only. So you can only get mail from people on those platforms. But that all changed in October. When AOL moved their AOL mail to the internet, so now you could sign up to AOL, get a permanent email address like mancrush at AOL.com. Don't email that because that's not real. Actually, maybe somebody has it, but it ain't me. Uh, <laughs> and you can get, and then you can basically email any one of those 15 million people that were on the internet at the time. And interestingly, by the end of 1997, AOL Mail was the biggest email provider on the block, close to 10 million users. Think about that. In four years, it went from 15 million people in total. And four years later, they had 10 million users as had email addresses through AOL. Matter of fact, AOL is still around today, even though it's owned by Verizon. So theoretically, you could still have that same email that you set up in 1993. Uh, and just to show like what morons we were in 1993. I, well, not much has changed really, but um, we would use like an internet search like Jughead, for example, to search for contact pages. And we would email just random people. And it was 
pretty amazing at the time. It was like finding somebody's unlisted phone number. But since people weren't spamming back then, except for us, obviously, you can almost guarantee to get a reply back, which is kind of cool. The internet back in 1993 was the Wild West. So having a permanent email address was amazing to have. So if you were sharing files back then, like we were, we typically had to use BBSs to share files. I mean, sure, we could have connected to IRC and used bots and did that whole thing, but we would usually call another BBS, but then you'd have to pay for long distance charges while we traded files. It was totally archaic and you'd, it was a ton of money. So I recall we emailed like a bunch of server admins that we found through that search method I was just talking about before. And we were asking all of them, hey, can you set us up an FTP account, which is basically file transfer protocol. It's basically the cloud before the cloud. And some dude from a university in California actually set us one up and it lasted for years. So that was like our hub to share files. It was pretty fucking awesome. And that would not have happened if I didn't have a permanent AOL email address once they connected to the internet. So that uh, October 25th, 1993, pretty big. Um, Man Crush, can you do me a favor and send me your age, sex, location? <laughs> ASL. No, it's baby. ASL, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to cyber with you. <laughs> I don't even know what you'd write these days. All right, so for my hot product, we're going to go over to the Los Angeles Times, October 29th, 1982, where the uh, front page of the business section reads the headline, E.T. casts a warm glow over Halloween sales. E.T. may have spent his first Halloween hiding underneath a sheet in Steven Spielberg's hit movie, but not so this week. With worries over product contamination threatening to hold down sales of treats, one of the few bright spots for retailers this Halloween has been E.T. The extraterrestrial has captured the fancy of fans. They have been shelling out anywhere from $55 for an elaborate life-size latex mask of E.T. to $3.49 for less ornate costumes. So the life-size rubber masks of E.T. were $55 in 1982. That's about $150 today. And people were shelling this out right and left. Matter of fact, Collegeville Flag and Manufacturing Company, it said they had sold well over a million of its E.T. costumes, not to mention all the black market and rip-off E.T. costumes that were on the market. And they even talk about McCall's, the fabric store. They had a pattern for an E.T. costume that you could make at home for $4, and it was actually the most expensive pattern that they had out of all of their patterns, which was over 700 and it was the number one seller for all of the uh, patterns for make-at-home costumes. So even though Halloween 1982 was kind of a bummer, it was a really big one for E.T. So that's what I'm bringing for my hot product, E.T. costumes for Halloween 1982. All right, down to our guest judge, Mike Ranger, for the ruling on the Hut Products round. Well, you know, I don't think there's anything to really think about here. Uh, aside from it being possibly one of the more boring stories of the evening, it's actually pretty relevant. So I'm going to have to give this one not to the train and not to ET, but to the, to the email address at AOL.com. Wow. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, you pick up a point in that round, heading into our first two-point round. You take control of the board. Where are we going, man? All right, well, there's only two places we can go, and let's finish up with movies, because that's always fun. So let's go to music. 
Uh, let's go back to October 28th. This is a release of a single from this artist's second studio album. And honestly, I was never a huge fan at the time since I was more into rock and East Coast rap. However, I'd say this single was pretty responsible for this guy getting out to the masses. He had another single that came out a couple months prior to this, which I believe is the better song in the long run. But this song was practically everywhere towards the end of 1993. And Mike's having a bad day, so I think this one will pick him up towards the end of this. Uh, Not saying that no one knew who this guy was, but this was clearly the commercial success that got him airplay on the radio and MTV, aside from, you know, being strictly played on, like, Yo! MTV raps. And, like, isn't it wild to think that MTV was actually a platform that made music popular? Because I, honest question for you guys, because I honestly do not know this. Where does one hear new music these days? Obviously, music videos are still made and they go to YouTube. But how does one find them? Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, boys and girls at home. But I think the Kardashians tell people what to do. <laughs> Is it? Is that what happens? So you have to watch the show. I think so. I think whatever they're listening to on like their whatever whatever's playing on their Walkman or their Discman, whatever they listen to these days, iPods. I don't care. Are we going backwards? Is it back to radio again? Uh, maybe. Because like, how do you find I them? hear about all my new releases right from Spotify. So, and those are tailored True. to your likes. So maybe that's where we've gone, where everything is so focused. Yeah, I'm I'm Spotify too, but also with our other show, I usually spend a lot of time looking at the the Billboard Hot 100. Yeah. So I also kind of look at that, but that's I mean I don't think a lot of people fucking do that. <laughs> it's kind of scary though. It kind of puts you in a box because they're always going to give you what they think you want to hear. Like maybe you're in the mood for something completely different. You're never going to hear that unless you go searching for it. Right. Like, like, all right, uh, let me, let me go old man screaming into the wind real quick. I feel like in the nineties, because of, you know, places like MTV and just in general, there was so much more diversity and there's more places to hear new music and, you know, get it out to you, to the masses. Right. I feel like now it's kind of streamlined. And if even, even just by looking at the charts, right. You've looked at the charts back in the nineties, you, I mean, on, on like the top 10, you could have Nirvana, you could have Prince, you could have Michael Jackson, Mariah Carey boys to men you know you could have a wide variety of genres all within a couple songs of each other like presence united states of america crash has dummies they had all kinds of crazy shit on there and it was what great. is on the charts now uh it's like the weekend um you have bieber drake i mean the problem i have yeah. now with looking at the charts is i can't tell if that's the name of the artist or the name of the song yes <laughs> i totally understand that but anyhow, like, I honestly didn't know. I don't listen to anything new, really, unless my daughter's listening to something. And I'm like, I have no clue what it is. I feel so old. Probably like my parents did back then. I always think about that. But they saw that I had MTV on. I don't even know what the fuck they do now. Anyway, this was the third single that was released off this album. And I'm going to use the acronym here. This was uh, the album Strictly for My Never Ignorant in Getting Goals Accomplished. And I'm not really sure what the Z stands for. Uh, This song would reach number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100 and would climb all the way to number two on the U.S. Hot Rap Songs chart. Uh, This song is basically Tupac's Ode to the Black Woman, a song that he wrote since women were so stereotyped in uh, rap music, is what he said, his words. 
and he wanted to embrace the strength and importance of black women. And I actually believe he captured that with this song. And I, I know Tupac was convicted of sexual assault and served time for that, something he denied till the day he died. Uh, so take that as you will. But this is the release of the hit single, Keep Your Head Up. Mike, that's for you. Thank you. Keep Your Head Up. October 28th, 1993, Tupac. Wow. Solid. That's a great album, man. All right. So for my music selection, we're going to go over to October 27th, 1982. Now, the Rolling Stone album guide calls this album the most influential album by this legendary artist. Its synth and rhythm drum machine heavy arrangements co-defined the Minneapolis sound that loomed over the mid-80s R&B pop charts, not to mention the two decades worth of electro, house, and techno music that all evolved out of the sounds that were produced on this album. Rolling Stone also included this album in its top 500 albums of all time. Uh, uh Sorry, guys, I was uh, dreaming when I wrote this, so uh, forgive me if it goes astray. Uh, released October 27th, 1982 by Warner Brothers Records, I give you 1999, the fifth studio album by Prince, and the very first album that he did with The Revolution. Now let's jump ahead a little bit to March 24th. 1999 was certified quadruple platinum within its first year. It was Prince's first top 10 album on the Billboard 200, peaking at number 9. Uh, the title track, 1999, was a Billboard Hot 100 top 20 hit. It's actually a protest song about nuclear proliferation. Following Prince's death, the song, 1999, actually recharted on the Billboard Hot 100 at number 41. Then it moved up to 27, making it the fourth separate time the song had entered the Hot 100 and in the third different decade in which it had recharted. The album 1999 also gave us a smash hit, Little Red Corvette, which Guitar World magazine has ranked as one of the greatest guitar solos in all time that's played on that song. Uh, and the song itself, Little Red Corvette, ranked 181st in the greatest songs of all time. So I give you 1999, probably the pinnacle breakout album from Prince. Released October 27th, 1982. All right, Drew Zachman, over to you for the music round. All right, so you give us an album by Prince. I give you an album on October 24th, 1975, that was most likely brought to you courtesy of cocaine and martinis. Uh, apparently, this guy could drink six martinis within a half hour, which I don't know if that's scary or just impressive, but I'm giving you the 10th studio album from Sir Elton John, Rock of the Westies. Now, this album debuted, so it just started off at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200, which made it one of only two albums at that time to do so. This album features the hit song Island Girl, which hit number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and sat there for three weeks. The album's gone platinum in the U.S. And if you don't believe that Elton John, I don't know if anybody's like listened to this album or not, uh, if you don't believe that Elton John was doing coke during the production of this album, just listen to the song Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future. He was fucking on coke when he wrote this album. But Elton John, I mean, he's still he's still relevant. Uh, dude has over 25 million monthly listeners on Spotify. So you were going to say he's still on coke. <laughs> no, no, he's, he's sobered up. But, I mean, he... Uh, 
Man, he I'll tell you what, he got his he probably packed a lifetime worth of coke in like those like fifteen years or so. He did it. So good for him. So that's what I got. I have Rock of the Westies, the tenth studio album from Mr. Elton I'm sorry, Sir Elton John, October twenty fourth, nineteen seventy five. I heard him play he did one of them concerts, the COVID concert things out on his yard. It was awful. <laughs> so bad. Yeah, whoever mic'd up his Ugh. setting for that should just be fired immediately. He keyed out the whole It was time. horrible, yeah. Ugh. All right, let's go down to Mike Ranger for the ruling on the music round. All right, well, I think this is really a fight between two uh, two artists here. Uh, as much as I do like Elton John, this is one of the albums that I actually am not very familiar with, so I'm going to discount that one, although I do, uh, I'm a fan. I like him. I saw him. So we've got we've got Prince and we've got Tupac. Now in with Tupac, are, are, are we talking about the album or just the single? This is just a single. Keep your head up, ooh child. <laughs> All right, sorry. <laughs> yes. All right, things are gonna get easier. Um, but um, <laughs> so this is what's tough here because on one hand, Man Crush, you have selected uh, my my favorite Tupac song. Not a big fan of that album, but that is my. Favorite all-time Tupac song. That is the... I wish Tupac did more um, of his conscious work as opposed to some of the stuff uh, later. But I know this Prince album is pretty big, but I'm not, like, the biggest Prince fan, so I've never actually listened to this album. But I feel like if I don't give credit to the full album over the one song, I don't know. But you gotta... There's a little bit of difference. I know it's one song. But you have to, I don't know, like, if you agree with my point on this, but is this not the song? Like, I think this is the first time I heard Tupac a lot on the radio, and I was like, oh, this guy's on to something. This guy's good. Was this not, like, the springboard song that kind of did it? You know, I don't know, because I feel like if you ask, if you were to line a bunch of people up, especially Tupac fans, and you were to throw out, like, list your favorite Tupac songs... I don't know if many people are going to throw that one out there first because there's so many other ones later. Like you're going to hear. I'm not saying it's the best. Well, I'm not saying it's the best. I'm just saying it's like the one that got people listening. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I think that's pretty much like his breakout. Well, that's like probably his big breakout song, but he was like working with Digital Underground before that. And he was in uh, that movie with Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd, uh, Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> well, that's big. That's huge. Um, so... Man, this is tough. 1999 is tough to beat. Just the, that song alone. Yeah. All right. Even, like, not even counting the album. I think if I was picking, I would nod. All right. Listen, I'm, I'm a huge, saying. I'm a Tupac fan. I love that song, but I got to give it to Prince on this one. Yeah. I mean, that. I think that's the first time that I ever just handed around over. Because I was like, yeah, that's. Big. You know, I mean, I definitely. I mean, I don't know. The black of the berry, the sweet of the juice. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> then why did Prince win? Keep your head. Uh, well, that's true. I don't know. All right. So with that win, I actually tie the game up with Man Crush heading into the final movies round. All right. Now I have the option to defer or to go first. But you know what, guys? I'm just going to go first. All right. So for my movie selection, this movie was released October 29th, 1982. And this one just could have been one of the all-time greats. This movie could have starred Eddie Murphy and Bruce Willis. 
But at the time, the director didn't think a unknown by the name of Bruce Willis would, you know, be a good asset for this movie. And the studios weren't sure if Eddie Murphy was right for the picture as well. So they announced it was going to be James Coburn and Yafet Kodo. But that's not who starred in the movie at all. It actually ended up being the director Larry Cohen's old friends, David Carradine and Michael Moriarty. Uh, Cohen was actually working on a movie called I, the Jury in New York City when he was fired from the project and still had a hotel room booked for several weeks. Didn't want to waste all the money on that. So within six days, Larry Cohen got his script together, got all the production together, hired actors, and started shooting this film, Q, The Winged Serpent. <laughs> I thought you were going 48 hours there. For no, no, yeah, see, that's where you think. But actually, I'm going with Q, The Winged Serpent. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this one. I had never seen it until this week, but I knew exactly what it was because of the beautiful cover art that we all saw in all of the VHS stores that was uh, drawn by Boris Vigilio. It actually features the New York City skyline with Q, the winged serpent, standing on top of the buildings. It's fantastic. you got to check out this movie just because of its schlocky goodness. If you're a big fan of uh, the movies of uh, Ray Harryhausen, you'll appreciate this because the special effects are are very similar. So, yeah, go check it out. October 29th, 1982, the all-time VHS classic. Q, it's, it's always in stock. You never have to worry about that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, over to you for the movies round. All right, so I think... We're all going the same direction, hopefully, because uh, I think mine is kind of in a similar vein here. October 29th, 1993. I'm not going to lie. I had limited options this week. Alas, it was Halloween this past weekend, so I figured I'd come with some horror for this one. Here's a movie that I did not see when it came out in theaters, and I don't know about you guys, but when a movie hits its third sequel, I usually wait for it to come out on rental or cable. Yeah. Sequels, I'll still go to the movies to see. But when it hits that magic number of three, I always get the feeling that the movie is going to be a watered-down version of the last yeah, two. Yeah, like Jedi. So I, yeah, well, well here's, that's the thing. So I started thinking about this a little bit, and the only ones that I could think about were Return of the Jedi, if you want to count that one, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Back to the Future. Part 3? <laughs> It's because he's topping it, man. I hate that one. Oh, it's terrible. I hate that one. First two, I love. Third one, I could. I, I, it's not that I hate it. I dislike it compared to the other two. But can you guys think of any other part threes where you were like, oh, I'm seeing that in the movies? Return of the King. Rambo. Yeah, but even Rambo 3, I was not. I mean, I was younger, too, so maybe I would have back then. Yeah. But that's a, that's a VHS. Major, Major League 3, half, Back to the Miners. <laughs> yeah, that's what i'm saying like i i literally sat there for like 10 15 minutes trying to think of them without looking anything up and i was like i'll tell you what i was legitimately excited to see karate kid part three and then what happened he saw it <laughs> what happened was i went with my friends because it was right around my birthday and they were so mad at me they were like really mad at me like one kid like refused to sleep over <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but going into it, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, Karate Kid Part 3. I didn't realize that Daniel's son was now a 35-year-old playing a fucking 19-year-old. 
Still wearing dad jeans. Yeah, wearing the same jeans. <laughs> How the hell does he kick in those jeans? He doesn't. If you watch the movie, you guys ass kicked all over the place. <laughs> it's because of the jeans. And then once again gets handed the goddamn tournament. Uh, anyways, I'm done butchering any hopes of winning with this round. But So this movie, it, once again, it committed the carnal sin of putting three in the title. But at least it doesn't feel like a threequel. And according to numbers.com, no one else saw this in the box office either, so I wasn't alone in that. It took in a whopping $21,000 at the box office. It's like $40,000 in 2020. Uh, clearly, this movie was made for the rental market. I doubt it had many screens to open, uh, but it did because I did find it in the LA Times. I got the clipping here. Uh, this is a Brian, I always butcher his name. Is it Brian Yuzna or Yuzna? Anybody know who I'm talking about? Not a clue. Not a nope. clue. All right. Well, it's a classic by Brian Yuzna. Uh, this is the same guy that did From Beyond, Bride of Reanimator, uh, Society. Ah, so okay. you kind of know what level of gore you're in for. And for years, like Mark said before, I would always see this cover at the rental store. And I am ashamed to say I never pulled the trigger to renting this one. And I'm embarrassed to admit I just watched it for the first time the other night. And I can confidently say... I missed out for all these years because this is a pretty damn good horror movie. Uh, if, if you're going to watch this movie, though, once I get into it, make sure you watch the unrated version. Supposedly, the R-rated version has gore chopped out like crazy. So uh, if you're not burned out by zombies at this point, you'll love this one. We get a love story. Then you sprinkle in a little self-mutilation, body modification, extreme gore, high school kids that feel the need to break into government facilities to impress their girlfriends, gangbangers who love arcade games, and lots of body parts getting bitten off. And if all that sounds good, then Return of the Living Dead 3 is the movie for you. And that was released on October 29th, 1993. I would have to agree with you on that, Man Crush. That is a fantastic movie. And nothing shows true love more than a woman who will body pierce herself to avoid the hunger pains of eating her own boyfriend. That whole scene, I can't even imagine. I didn't see the R-rated version. I saw the on, I saw the unrated version. So I saw basically her making, you know, a belt, uh, like her basically using her body as like a belt loop. Yes. And shoving stuff through it. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a she, great movie. she takes a chain and cuts slits in her skin and then weaves the chain in and out of her skin. That's the great part about this movie because it's 1993. You're right at like the fringe. So CGI hasn't completely taken over yet. So you still have these practical effects. And that was right. an entire bodysuit that she wore, so, which is pretty nuts. Like all the work they did. And the, like the zombies eating people in that movie, it's fantastic. Oh, it's and Santos? Everywhere. The guy, she rips off his head and it's just his head and his spinal cord. Yeah. The effects on that and the puppets are great. Good pick, Man Crush. But let's see what Drew Zachman has for the movies round. No, I have, oh, I have a, don't sell me short yet, kids. I have a movie that came out on October 24th, 1975. The movie is The Giant Spider Invasion. I know everybody's seen that. It was one of the best selling movies of all time. Siskel and Ebert said this is the best movie we've ever seen. Uh, they had a budget of $300,000. Box office, it pulled in $15 million. So that's a pretty solid return on your investment right there. $15 million on 300 grand for the budget. Not too shabby. Um, but 
I'm not going to talk about the movie. I'm going to use this platform, if I may, gentlemen, to talk about how we vilify spiders. This really chaps my ass. It really, it's, it really does. You know, we, we walk around Halloween and everybody has like their decorations and shit up and all they have are spiders everywhere. You know how many people die from spider bites every year in the United States? It's like seven. That's insane. That's it. Seven people. Now, according to the World Health Organization, the number one killer of human beings all over the world, mosquitoes. Mosquitoes kill about one million people a year, most of which, you know, it's caused by malaria, although West Nile virus, dengue fever, also potentially deadly. But mosquitoes, man, fucking mosquitoes. Yet we have, you know, these these decorations of spiders. And then whenever anybody sees a spider, it's like, ooh, they're spooky and scary. It's like, no, they're not. These guys are actually the heroes because they eat the fucking mosquitoes that are trying to kill anybody. <laughs> so I feel like we should, I, we need to change a narrative. I talked about this on Songs Gone Wrong. We did an episode on um, spider webs from No Doubt. And I feel like I, I want to bring it up again here because this is, we, we, need to, we need to fix this. We need to fix this wrong. I wish one of the presidents would actually bring this up during any of the debates and talk about how they're going to change a narrative on spiders. Anyway, uh, humans were second. They kill about 475,000 people a year, which I kind of feel that's low. Snakes are third. Snakes kill about 50,000 people a year. So, yeah, Indiana Jones was right. Um, <laughs> dogs kill about 25,000 people a year, mostly from, like, maulings and rabies, uh, rabies bites. But, yeah, spiders. Spiders kill about seven people a year. Freshwater snails kill about 10,000 fucking people a year but you don't see any fucking freshwater snail decorations around halloween time do you is that a true it's really seven seven it's almost hard to believe who's keeping track of this the world health organization yeah they're fucking asshats though that doesn't sound right at all seven people probably die from earthworms okay so even all right so even if you quadruple that you're at like what 28 you're at 30 well let's round up to 100 for fuck's sake you know Sure, that's fine. All right, and, and think about it, right? Uh, a, a deadly spider, the brown recluse spider, right? He's, it, it's, his, it's in his name. He's a fucking recluse. He's not going to do anything unless he feels he's being attacked. Mosquitoes proactively will fucking bite you. That's how they survive. The recluse is like, yo, bro, leave me alone. The mosquito's like, I'm going to fucking... I'm going to get some fucking blood out of you. Blood and they suck blood, right? Like a fucking vampire. Why are oh, there not more mosquitoes? Are, yeah, they're terrible. But they're, that's like a terrible prop, though. Think about how small Have you ever watched a video of a mosquito, like, actually digging its little... First of all, yeah. this little thing is called, like, a proboscis or something like that, which just sounds weird. But they, if you watch, like, a close-up video, yeah. like, a, like a magnified uh, uh, video of a mosquito, like, biting somebody, it's like that's like some alien-level shit right there. So what you're saying is we shouldn't be afraid of spiders because they're all introverts. Spite, not, not all of them. They're not all introverts. But I feel like the majority of them are. But there's a couple that are probably assholes. But, but mosquitoes, all of them are assholes. Every single one of them. They're all a bunch of little pricks. If your movie was... What was the name of your movie again? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> the Giant Spider Invasion. Right, and how many times have you seen, like, I mean, you have, like, the giant spider invasion. What was it? Uh, eight crazy legs. There was arachnophobia. What, have there, I mean, I, maybe I missed it, but has there ever been, like, a movie about fucking mosquitoes? There should be. Probably. I mean, I'm sure someone has done something like that, but, I mean, not on the level of spiders. And spiders are the ones that go out and get rid of mosquitoes. They put up their little webs. First of all, those webs look pretty fucking sweet. They put a lot of work into it. They're trying to catch mosquitoes so the mosquitoes don't bite us. So they're helping us out. Yet here we are vilifying them every fucking year on Halloween time. Fuck that. 
And without spiders, Gwen Stefani would have nothing to walk through when she's not home. This is true. <laughs> this is true. That's how she gets rid of uh, prank callers. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, stalkers. It was just actually a stalker that was calling her. But anyway, what was this movie again? Oh, yeah. It was uh, The Giant Spider Invasion. Also, this movie was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 in 1997. I feel like that has to count for something because that show is fucking amazing. Sounds so. like if it was the invasion of the giant mosquitoes, it'd be a lot better. That'd be a now, lot scarier. Now that, you ex- now that you've explained it. Either way, it's going to suck. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I don't know if spiders, spiders don't suck on you. They just, like, bite you. Mosquitoes do. Yeah, mosquitoes suck. Spiders suck. They have to extract the, the blood and stuff out of uh, their prey once no, they, they just bite. them up. They would just bite. I don't know. In arachnophobia, they um, don't they, like, suck that guy dry? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's also fiction. That's fake news right there. Of course, <laughs> anyhow, anyhow, spiders are our friends, man. I'm not a scientist. I don't. I'm not. I'm not a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> you might not be a scientist, but Mike Ranger is definitely a judge. He sure is. Let's go down to him for the final judgment on this game. I wasn't expecting this to happen. Usually I've heard of every single movie that's listed, but in this particular case, I've only heard of one of them. And the fact that I have to choose this one when I consistently walked right fucking past it in every rental store I ever went into because it looked like the shittiest sequel ever. I am going to have to give this to Return of the Living Dead Part 3. You never watched it either? No, because I hated the cover. I don't feel bad now. The cover with the girl with the, yeah. all the piercings. And I would shit. walk right past it, and I'm a, I, I own the first two, you know, and it's just like it's actually very good. It's really one of those, I gotta watch this. It's Fuck. one of those movies where, God damn it. it, I think you're the same as me, where we find like a mediocre movie that's pretty much a gem, and then you're you think it's that much better than it actually is. Within ten fifteen minutes of beginning the movie, I was like, oh, this is a solid movie. That one, I don't know what it was. I, I think it, I think it was just the cover. It looked so different yeah. than the other two movies. Yep. And I was yeah. like, I don't know if I want to watch this. For a period, it was on, I think, either Showtime or HBO on repeat for like an entire summer. So I think I saw it about 25 different times. It was probably 1994. Yeah, that sounds about right. I did look up the cover for your movie, Mark. The cover's really cool. I've never seen that one, though. Yeah, I hadn't seen it either. But again, much like Man Crush, it was a, a box that I saw in the video store every single time. And I'm like, man, that's some really cool art. But I never pulled the trigger on it. And I'm kind of glad that I didn't because the cover art is not indicative of the art of the film itself. Like, I was expecting that looking at the cover that it would be like a fantasy film. It's yeah. more like a cop story. With a monster. It's more like a Godzilla film than anything. It's a cock story? What kind of movie is this? But, and then with uh, with Drew, like, I actually, I'm into, like, the spider movie. So, like, Kingdom of the Spiders with William Shatner or yes. Tarantula. Um, See more but, movies made about spiders. Yeah. But now you've got me thinking totally differently about spiders. And I'm going to, next time I see one, and, you know, and, and I'm alone. I'm gonna, you know, jerk off with it. I don't think, yeah, I don't think you have to take it that far. You could just maybe walk around well, it. Well, listen, I'm looking at these eight legs totally differently. <laughs> Options. <laughs> not my intention. Not my, in, not my intention at all. Look what you've done. Send, send your fan mail to Drew. 
<laughs> and, and hopefully I don't pick up a brown uh, recluse. Hashtag spiders are friends. All right, man crush. So with your victory here in the movies round, you win this game. Whoop. And you didn't even have to pick a spiders movie. No, I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't have to go to my tiebreaker, which was uh, an issue of Jet Magazine from October 25th, 1993, that featured Michael Jordan on the cover after he abruptly retired. Oh, that would have won. (laughs) (laughs) Nail in the coffin. Oh, man. All right, Duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to end this episode right here. want to congratulate Man Crush for picking up a victory. But if you've missed an episode, you can always go back to DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on all your podcast platforms. And in the meantime, head over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades, where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.